Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Good morning, everyone. In the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, he made sure that he would explain how truly amazing God's grace is. In the fifth chapter, he talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he reminded us how amazing, truly, that privilege that we have to have God in the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and sharing with us his nature. Let's pause a moment before we get to, the, to his message in the letter to the Romans to reflect on that for a moment. How amazing is it, the fact that God Almighty, the Holy Spirit, whom we find present in creation, bringing order to a, to a chaotic creation, would be dwelling in us. And as he dwells in us, he's very active and he's pouring out God's own love into our hearts. And that means that he makes us partakers of God's nature of love. He enables us to participate in, in that nature, to express it, because he pours that love in us, and that love is supposed to flow through us and onto one another. So, in other words, Paul has been talking in a letter to the Romans about the transformational work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who gives us a new nature and a new life. And we can look at that new life as a beginning, and perhaps for some of us it is a beginning. But maybe for others, it's more of a renewal that we need to think about than a, a brand new start. But whether it is a brand new start, whether it is a new start or a renewal, of our commitment or our new newness of life in Christ, we still have one question that needs to be addressed. And that one question is, what does that new life look like? We can be seasoned Christians and still have that question. What does that new life look like? What is a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and how does it work in us? And that is exactly what Paul begins to address in the letter to the Romans in chapter 6. Let's read together. Chapter 6, and verses 1 to 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we 
who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, Paul here makes it clear that God's grace is truly abundant, right? Let's review verses 1 and 2 together. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we, who die to sin, still live in it? Paul here tells us that, yes, God's grace is absolutely amazing, and it's absolutely abundant. But there is a possible misunderstanding that we could have about that. And he asks us a rhetorical question. Are we to continue in sin? Perhaps in a little bit more modern terms. Should we ignore Christian behavior because of God's grace? I mean, after all, if God forgives us, so why bother? I mean, he's going to forgive us of everything. So why bother engaging in Christian behavior? Might as well just uh, go and, and sin any way I want because I know that God's grace will cover that, right? And in that way, many people, or in similar ways, many people take the call to purity very lightly, especially today. And by doing so, many end up taking God's grace for granted. And that's not quite advisable. In fact, Paul gives us an emphatic response to that rhetorical question that he himself asked. Are we continue to sin so that that grace may abound or increase even? And then he says, may it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? So Paul said, no, not at all, by no means, absolutely not. That is not God's way, that is not our way. God's grace is never intended to encourage sin in any way. And he gives us a reason here, which is then he's going to expound on. Because we have died to sin. We're no longer part of sin. We have died to sin. But right here, right at the beginning of this chapter, we have a very important statement that we need to understand. Paul here does not say that sin has died to the believer. If it did so, he would have implied that the believer no longer has the craving, no longer experiences the cravings of sin. But he said that the believer has died to sin. Which means that even as believers, we still 
have cravings of sin. We still experience the cravings of sin. They're going to still be there. But if we had truly died to sin, if we're truly believers, then we're no longer living to satisfy those cravings. And that's what he means when, when he says that we, the believer, has died to sin. In verses 3 and 4, it's written, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul here uses the symbol of baptism to explain what having died to sin to sin really means. And it's a beautiful illustration. It's well worth taking a moment to understand. Notice, first of all, what he says in verse 3. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now, we need to understand one thing. That Christ died for our sins to forgive us. But that does not take away or minimize in any way the seriousness of sin. In fact, if anything, it emphasizes how serious sin truly is. Think about it for a moment. Why would God Almighty, God the Son, come into this world and suffer and die if sin was not a serious matter? The very sacrifice of Jesus Christ the extent to which, to which God the Son went in order to provide that redemption for us, to pay the penalty of sin, if anything, emphasizes how dreadful, dreadfully serious sin actually is. The only reason why that would make sense is that sin is extremely destructive, more than we can possibly even begin to imagine, because otherwise, it would make no sense whatsoever for Jesus Christ, God the Son, to go through all that in order to, to pay for sin. But there is another concept we need to be reminded of. That forgiveness that we have in Christ, as I said a moment ago, does not make sin less serious. Because that forgiveness is not the same as the forgiveness that we are taught to extend by our mothers when we are little. God, as he forgives us, does not say, it's okay, dear. Because, as we said before, no sin is okay. No evil can be okay. No wrongdoing can be okay. What is sin is sin. What is evil is evil. What is wrong is wrong. And it will never be okay. But that's exactly why Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for us. Paul uses the imagery of baptism here. Baptism in a way, it means that, or symbolizes, our participation in the death of Christ. Look at what happens at baptism. The individual who's being baptized is immersed in the water, which is symbolic of our burial with Christ, our participation in Christ's death, our identification with his death, our communion with him, if you want to put it that way. Not as still uh, in uh, verses uh, 4, that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too 
might walk in newness of life. So in that beautiful imagery of baptism, following that immersion in the water, which is symbolic of our participation or identification in the death of Christ, there is also a symbolism in the coming out of the water. As we emerge out of the water, that becomes a symbol of our, our new life in Christ. And it, it's a beautiful picture. But one thing that is implied here in Paul's statements is that it is not our work. Yes, we, we go through the motions of baptism, immersing the, the, the new Christian in the water and bringing him out, and there is a symbolic action, and it's very important. But it is God. God is the one who is doing the work, and he's doing it through his glory, not us. Now in verse 5 is written, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul here begins to address sanctification, which takes place because we are united with Christ. Now, Paul here wrote, if we have become united with him, but that if is used in a rhetorical sense. It's not intended to put a question of whether we have become united with him, but he's assuming that the audience, his readers, know very well that we are united with him in the likeness of his death. And therefore, that if actually become, changes meaning, and it, it acquires the meaning of because. It's almost like saying, if I'm speaking with you right now, that means I'm giving you a message. But you know that I'm speaking with you. Therefore, the if takes the meaning of because. Because I'm speaking with you, I'm giving you a message. And Paul here says, because we are united with him in the likeness of his death. So what he points out to is the fact that we have a starting point. The starting point is that we have died to sin. We have identified ourselves in Christ's death. We have communion with Christ in his death. But then there is a process as well. That communion that we have with him and in him is a start of a new life. It begins a new life and it continues in a process of a new life toward an end. And that end is our glorification also in Christ. Still in verse 5, Paul wrote, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So yes, just as we become united with him in the likeness of his death, Paul says we're going to be in the likeness of his resurrection. So that communion with Christ in the likeness of his death, which means our death to ourselves, to our selfish nature, our death to sin, our death with Christ in Christ, our participation of, in the cross, also leads us to experience communion with him in his resurrection in the form of a new life, a brand new life that Scripture calls a new birth. But that new life is a progressive growth in that communion, and that's called sanctification. That progressive growth in that communion changes us from within. 
Now, what is sanctification? Well, sanctification has been defined in a very interesting way. Has been defined as God gradually separating us from sin and from our sinful nature and from our selfish nature and drawing us to Himself, transforming our life through His presence, through His holiness, and through His purity. But that process is a lifelong process. I, for one, would confess any moment that I'm definitely not perfect and that God is still a work in my life to change it. And I know that that's the case for every one of you. And this lifelong process, however, as has an end, and it will culminate with the resurrection when God will make us fully conform to the image of Christ. And what a glorious day that's going to be. So look at that from the perspective of the imagery of baptism again. So now it, that, that beautiful imagery, that beautiful symbolism becomes even more interesting because baptism is no, long, no longer just a symbolism of our burial with Christ and our resurrection in a newness of life with Him, but it also becomes a symbol of our immersion in Christ. And as we are immersed in that water, it pictures the fact that we are immersed in Christ, completely and totally immersed in Him, culminating in the springing forth into eternal life with them and in Him. It's a beautiful picture. In verses 6 and 7, we then read, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now Paul here expands his explanation, and uh, bearing in mind that the penalty of sin is death, as he will say later in this very chapter, Paul makes a point, and he writes, Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Because we have accepted his sacrifice in faith. Because we have taken on a new identity in him. Because in a way we are dead with Christ, our body of sin is done away, Paul says. And the result of that is freedom. Look at it in, in verses 6 and 7. That we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. So, it gives us the good news of freedom. It makes us free from sin. He makes us. We can't do it ourselves, but God, through Christ, in Christ, and by the Holy Spirit, makes us free from sin. But he uses also an image of slavery here, which is quite, quite graphic, quite, quite important. If we are in slavery, it means we are oppressed. It means that the master that holds us in slavery exercises his or her power to hold us down in that slavery and makes it impossible for us to do anything else but what we are commanded and ordered to do because otherwise that power, that oppression, will get worse and worse and worse. But contraposed to that, there is an image of freedom. There is an image of freedom because we are no longer under the power of sin. 
We are no longer under the power of fear. And perhaps for the first time, we have the ability to choose a different path. We have the ability to see life restored. Because when we have no choice whatsoever but to, to satisfy the pull of sin, there is no real life there. And all of a sudden, like a whole new world opens up in front of us, and it seems like for the first time we really live, and live to the fullest. Without that fear, without being subjected and subjugated by that power, and with the ability to choose our path, and not having it chosen for us. Let's look now at verses 8 and 9. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. So, Paul here, in essence, is kind of repeating the same concept in slightly different terms for emphasis. He wants to make sure that we understand it. So he makes pretty much the same point, but in a slightly different way, perhaps thinking that if we missed it before, probably we're going to get it now. Notice what he says, or what he writes. If we have died with Christ, we shall also live with him. Once again, that if is in a rhetorical sense. And it means because we have died with Christ, then we know that we shall also live with him. And as Paul is talking, obviously, about the future, it's not just referring to our future in eternity. It's referring to our present life as well. In other words, as we have new life in Christ, as we participate in, this resur- in his resurrection, we participate in that resurrection even now, in our newness of life, in the change that the Holy Spirit is working out in us, in our life, to transform it and bring us closer and closer to the image of Christ. Still, in verse 9, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Death, death is a scary perspective, isn't it? But we find great comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has overcome death once and for all. And by overcoming death, and as you can see here, it says that he's raised from a death and is never to die again. And, and death no longer is master over him. And as we are identified in him, as we have a communion with him, and we're made one with him, he has also removed the mastery of death from us. And that's wonderful news. And he gives us comfort. In verse 10, Paul wrote, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So now Paul begins to address the finality of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Notice he wrote, He died to sin once and for all. So the emphasis here is on on the fact that Christ's work is complete, it's final, it's done. As Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, it is done. And think about it, how amazing is that the creator of all things, the sustainer of a whole universe, would be incarnate 
as one of us, would make himself human to connect with us, to connect with you, and that he would want to suffer and died for you. And we're not just talking about anyone here. We're talking about the one who has created all things and sustains all things. That he has chosen you. He made himself like you, human, so that in him you have connection with God, so that he would suffer and die, so you can have freedom and life in him. What greater love can anyone ever be shown? But notice that he says, he died to sin once and all, yes, but he lives to God. So, let's be careful here that we are not tempted to make a mistake. I've heard people referring to the gospel as Christ on the cross. But, brethren, Christ on the cross does not equate the gospel. The gospel includes, yes, his sacrifice and crucifixion, yes, but also his triumphal victory over the world. The gospel includes his victory over death and him overcoming death for all of us. And the gospel includes how he has opened the way for our eternal fellowship with God in him. And without his resurrection, without the, his victory over death, without the, the concept of him having overcome death and the fact that he lives to God, the gospel will never be complete. But that is indeed good news. Finally, we look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It seems like Paul wants to make a, a brief summary of what he has written so far in uh, chapter 6. Because of our identity in Christ, because we find a new identity in Christ, because of our communion in Christ, it is time. It is time for either a new birth or for a renewal in him. Notice what he wrote. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Yes, we have a new identity. We're dead to sin, but we're also alive to God. And that is part of our new identity. But let's understand it for a second. Death and living. What, what is death? Isn't death the absence of activity? When a patient no longer has cardiovascular activity, no longer has brain activity, that patient is declared dead. Death is the absence of activity. So being dead to sin means we have no more activity in sin. But we're not just dead to sin, are we? Just, Jesus, just like Jesus Christ was not just, did not just die for us, but he was risen and he lives for us. So likewise, we're not just dead to sin, but we're alive to God. And life means the presence of activity. So while death means the cessation or the absence of activity, life reflects the presence of activity, and that activity is now is no longer in sin, but is in communion with God. And that's what Paul says, well, really, that is the sum total of our calling, to be dead to sin and alive to God. How? as he wrote in verse 11, in Christ Jesus. Yes, brethren, because it is only in Christ 
that we can have that communion with God. It is only in Christ that we have true life. It is only in Him that we have freedom from that slavery to sin, and only in Him that we have victory over death. And it's only in Christ that we have assurance of eternal life and the assurance of an eternal inheritance, the inheritance that He Himself shares with us. So, if you're listening to this and you have questions, call us, write us, send us a message, talk with us, and we will be more than happy to help you out and to help you find answers to your questions. If you have questions about your salvation, if you have questions about your conversion, don't, don't stay with the questions. Ask them. Seek and you will find. And we'll be glad to help you to find the answers. And there are good news. There is good news for you. If you are a converted person, a Christian, truly converted, then what we have seen here is that you are immersed in Christ. You are fully immersed in Christ. And you have died to sin. And you have been given a precious communion with God. And you have a new life in Christ. And you know, it is time. A time, a time of renewal. A time for renewal. Now you don't need to start all over again. You don't need to go back to the ABCs. You don't need to go back to the, to the milk uh, uh, that, that you, were, you started out with. You now need some solid meat. But you may need to renew. We may need to renew our commitment to who we are in Christ. We may need to renew our awareness of who we are in Christ. And whether we experience joy or trials, it is time for us to stand up and to truly be who we are in Christ. It is time for us to move ahead, to grow a little more toward that purity and the holiness that we have in Christ. And may this time of renewal be a blessing. And may it be indeed all of us dead to sin, but very much alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.